Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations. The first three are complete forms of the three edited interviews that comprised episode four. And the second three are previously unreleased sections from our coverage of Nashtag 2023 in episodes one, two, and three of season four. This conversation comes from our coverage of the first day of Nashtag, from a conversation with Louise Campbell and patient advocates Tony Villiotti and Mike Patel. It starts with Tony and then mine, noting that the enthusiasm they are feeling at Nashtag actually started back at ASLD in November, increased at the Mosaic meeting in December, and is cascading now. For these advocates, the enthusiasm is largely about the likely approval of drugs in the near future, and the urgency it places on them to expand their efforts to, as Tony puts it, get the message out. Mike notes this is particularly important for primary care physicians who will be frontline screeners, but with them getting to learn that there is more besides diet and exercise that can be done to support treatment, they will be motivated to test and act appropriately. Louise adds that the alignment of special around screening is also critical to advancing fatty liver care and, in response to a question from Mike, makes explicit her belief that multidisciplinary alignment and the statement supporting that will increase enthusiasm further. From there, the conversation goes on to look at the idea that patients might be on a drug that has an effect on NASH for diabetes or obesity before they even get to a NASH drug and what effect that might have on the perceived frequency of NASH and the efficacy of drugs. And the rest of the conversation focuses on the issue of how long patients must be on medication, which Louise likes to uh, comparable to autoimmune diseases requiring flares, and then on to who we need to educate and how strongly in the medical stakeholder community. I have the good fortune to speak weekly with industry executives and academic researchers in unscripted, unrecorded settings. This conversation should bring you some of that feeling as these individuals went home to take lessons from the hashtag for their own work and their own company. Their perspectives are thoughtful and different. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, Join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Tony Villiotti. This momentum, I think, began when I was at the liver meeting in November. Just the wave of enthusiasm and positivity over the likelihood of having a medical solution that'll help at least some people you know, has really just, you know, in from our perspective, just raise our urgency in getting the message out there that this is a disease you should be aware of. You know, lack of awareness is a big issue. It's a disease you should be aware of because, you know, some answers are coming. I think there's still some realities that have to be faced along that path. But from, from our standpoint, I just think we feel an increased urgency to get the message out there. Mike Bottel. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. And I agree with what Tony said. Um, I'll go back to one other meeting too, the Mosaic meeting that I attended. There was a lot of discussion there about the new therapies that were coming out. So two points. One is this is a message of hope. It offers a future. We were seeing a lot of graveyards in the past, and I hope those days are gone. And now we have something to talk about. When you think about the first line uh, that the patients are seeing are the primary care physicians, as an example, as long as there was no therapy on the horizon, it was like, yeah, okay, you know what you need to do is exercise and you have to control your diet and, you know, we'll see you again in a year. Now, at least they have to take it more seriously because these agents are coming and they're coming soon. I go back to that hope is a really big thing for people and for patients. It makes all the difference in the world to know that there's something coming. Louise Campbell. I'd echo exactly what Tony and Michael have just said. Also, what I got a sense of towards the end of 2022 was the alignment of the other specialities as well. So the potential for more patients to become aware of liver as a problem. So last year we saw the American Association of um, Heart put in looking for and, and 
um, recommending Naffold and Nash as an assessment for patients with heart disease, published this month and released at the end of 2022, was the New American Association of Diabetes Standards of Care, whereby they advocate in recommendation four that um, patients are screened for Naffold and Nash, particularly if you have type 2 diabetes or risks of heart disease. So I think we're now seeing that alignment and the fact that these medications are becoming available means I think that alignment is going to get stronger. I think we'll discuss later on in this episode some of the data that was presented with semaglutide, but I'm certainly seeing a few more people who have taken semaglutide coming for fibre scans from a different background. That's probably encouraging because I think there's a wealth of data being missed in that population because we're not doing non-invasive liver techniques. We've got a drug approved in a population where we're missing some data that we're collecting in trials now. So I think that sense of enthusiasm coupled with new medication, coupled with now a recognition within strong cohorts of patients, we might get that message out there that offers really, really good potential through 2023 if we can get pathways in that are correct in a way that doesn't overstretch healthcare. And I think that's a big thing, certainly in the UK at the moment. So are you also seeing that there'll be more enthusiasm from the multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach? I think, yes. Certainly what we're seeing from a US perspective and the rest of the world do tend to follow. And I know some of our guidelines need to be updated. They're out of date. They're several years out of date. So they were probably due to be updated. But I think what we haven't seen before is this drive by cardiology and endocrinology to mention the word NAFLD, NASH, fatty liver disease. We're now seeing it in guidelines. And when you certainly get the American Association of Diabetes saying in the standards of care for patients with diabetes that you should be looking for NAFLD and NASH, then we see a game changer because that's a recommendation of a standard of care that's measurable. You are either doing it or you don't do it. That is a measurable outcome and a key performance indicator for me, even if it's only suggested and not necessarily put in the diagrams, but it's recommendation four, I believe. So that is a game changer. Endocrinology are at the table. There was a drive at the end of last year looking at FIB4 predicting cardiac outcomes. I genuinely get a sense there is, certainly in the field, whether or not it's on the grassroots level yet, a change in momentum to join and the liver portfolio or to take control of it and give the liver disease to liver specialists. So I do think there's a change. Roger, can I ask one more question, if, if that's okay? It's possible down the road that it'll be a combination therapy world or there'll be other therapeutics coming out. However, in the short term, like Louise was saying, so if endocrinologists are using drugs like the GLP-1s, they are indicated for obesity, or they're not indicated, are they indicated for, for obesity, I guess, and, and uh, yeah. diabetes? Uh, but. Semaglutide has Wagovi, which is an obesity drug, and Terzepatide, I believe, has or is getting an, a, an obesity indication from Unjaro. So that would be the two, yeah. Yeah, and so when you look at the makeup, the demographics of NAFLD-NASH patients, as we all know, obesity type 2 diabetes diabetes are a big part of that for most people. So it's possible that those specialists might be writing the drugs for the weight side of it. And the liver doctors could be writing these new therapies as they come out and they could end up getting combination anyway. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. I think you're right. One of my concerns is that when we look at semaglutide data, when people go to review patients who are on semaglutide for diabetes, for example, that they will not find fatty liver because they've already defatted the liver with the semaglutide. So they'll say, well, these patients, 
evidence aren't relevant. The fact that the drug was already working, because we don't have that predator, we're going to miss a section of patients in that. So I think that's a risk that we take with that. You're perfectly right. We've got semaglutide that is also, as we know, in a significant number of trials within NASH. It was a very good presentation that I'll certainly come on to later, where it was looked in combination therapy with Gilead products. What struck me towards the end of last year in one of the podcasts was, yes, the resmeterone data is extremely pertinent and extremely encouraging, but it only ticks 25% of the population. So that means there's another 75% where drugs need to be targeted at. It doesn't mean we've solved the problem. It means we're starting to get a really good feel. And yes, you've said the the graveyard may be less full. There will be still drugs, I'm sure, that fall into the graveyard. There will also be other ones that are stopped earlier in the pathway because they're not showing any efficacy in comparison to drugs like resmeterone and I suppose a beta-codic acid and the next ones are cabs off the rank, I suppose. So yes, you will get combination therapy. It was a big fear in hepatitis C that you would just get one doctor prescribing one drug and then somebody would add another drug without the evidence that these two drugs mixed. It's a risk, but it's also something that happens naturally in medication prescribing. So spoiler alert to our audience, the conversation with Jorn and Dean Ty from Histoindex and me tomorrow night, which was actually recorded the day before Christmas, will be, I think, highly relevant to this. What Histoindex has been able to do is to clarify what zone of the liver different agents might be affecting. So, in fact, it isn't just that it's working for 25% of patients. It's There are specific characteristics about those patients and probably some specific characteristics about the liver, although we haven't gotten quite that far yet, where resmeterone is more effective versus where OCA might be more effective versus other drugs that come in line. So when we say we've got two drugs that each work 25% of the time, right, one of the questions is, well, have we covered half the patients? Have we covered 25% of the patients twice? And how do we know how to get the right drug to the right patient? Maybe it's working 100% of the time in a small subset. Right. So as we have more drugs, we'll learn a lot more about that. And I think, you know, when Luis talks about the semi-combination data, which we'll get to in a minute, this, these are the kinds of things that we're starting to touch on. You know, the interesting thing about the liver is that there are so many hypothesized modes of action because so much stuff is going on in there that it might not be realistic to think that any one drug will have a long-term effect in monotherapy on 75 or 80% of patients. We think that the fruxifermin data is pretty heroic, and that doesn't quite get to 50% on the hard measures, but it gets close, really close. Roger, the, I mean, the other thing is too, I don't think we know because it hasn't been long enough, how long patients are going to have to stay on the therapies too. This is not a, I'm sick, take this medication and now you're cured. This is very likely going to be something that can recur. Yeah, that's a good question, Mike, because I, I think, you know, all these drugs, I know, you know, from my own experience with, you know, post-transplant, with the anti-rejection drugs, you know, these these drugs have some side effects, ramifications that become evident over time. You know, a lot of the answers have yet to come once people are on the drugs for an extended period of time, what else is going to happen to their body? So I think that's a question for the future, but, but you know, kind of goes back to how long will people be on a drug? If, if it's a short burst, that may be minimal. But I think in all these drugs, it's not going to be the kind of thing where someone can take a pill and then walk over their couch and eat a half a pizza and drink some beer and think they're cured. So a lot of this story is still to be written. Yeah, although the experience with statins would suggest that people are going to do that, whether it's a good idea or not. And I agree with you totally, Tony. I suppose it all comes back to education. You don't get put on a pill or any medication without education. There was a presentation earlier on today by um, Suzanne Shrapton on diet, lifestyle and bariatric surgery. And lifestyle will remain the keystone of all of the treatments, whether or not you're on medication or not on medication. Because yes, there may be some side effects for some patients that they come off or individual 
individuals. So it is a way of tailoring that, but everything's going to come with education. If you can come off a medication because you've improved your diet and lifestyle through that education process, then you would do so to reduce those side effects and to reduce any effect of that. If you then need to go back on it, whether or not that is what these medications offer us, then that may be an option. But I don't see as that being particularly dissimilar to somebody with autoimmune flares that we put on steroids every now and again to actually control the flare to do that. There gives more scope of combination of lifestyle diet within the NAFLD and NASH community with the enhanced education that's going to come with any medication that comes out will come out with programs to locate, to to educate, to tick various boxes to get access to medications. We know these are not going to be one size fits all. They're not going to be available to everybody. Everybody can have access to education and training. And that's that's including staff, myself, patient advocates, groups throughout the world. What can we do with these medications to enhance the way that they're distributed, the way that they're developed, and also the way that the pathway fits the communities that they are meant to serve? There's a whole network behind any release of these medications, but some of the figures are, f- are very, very good early stages. So encouragement and excitement, I suppose, for 2023. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation. Or if that doesn't work, send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first non-NASH tech content of 2023. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.